Welcome to Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. Welcome. Okay, take it from here, Kaushik. Hey folks, this is Kaushik. Don's probably halfway across the country somewhere in an RV at this point. So unfortunately, he won't be joining me in the discussion today. But we have an amazing guest here who I had the pleasure of chatting with again today. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. So Amanda, can you tell us a little about yourself, how you got started in general with programming and how your journey as an Android developer started? Sure, absolutely. I am um, the lead Android developer here at Venmo. Um, I started actually my Android career, if you will, (laughs) you can call it that, here at Venmo as well. Um, I actually joined Venmo to help them with um, Facebook marketing, but it was around the time of the PayPal acquisition and marketing was just kind of not a top priority for us at the time, Um, but Android development was. So I, um, with the help of some incredible mentors and very kind individuals, learned both Java and Android. Um, And that was a little over a year ago now, and I've basically been doing it ever since. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, it's pretty (laughs) nuts. Yeah, I mean, one year is like not a long time to learn both. Yeah, I think um, I think when you're learning programming languages in today's age, there's so many boot camps and online resources. So there's definitely too much information out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think my best advice for people, which I realize not everyone has the ability to do, but when you're learning in a professional setting, mm-hmm. it makes it a lot easier um, because there are just high standards and you're not kind of, you have practical use for everything that you're learning. Um, And so things like GitHub are just so much easier to learn in a professional setting where it was designed to be used. You know, there are actually other people contributing to a repository. So you understand why you can't, you know, force push things and (laughs) you learn very quickly. completely on something and then push it up to... Exactly. No problems there. (laughs) Yeah. So when the stakes are higher, which they tend to be, you know, at a company, um, it just makes learning that much easier, I think. Definitely. You make an amazing point there. When you have, when you use Git in terms, like in a company setting, when you actually have to use it with other people, that's where it really shines. And you realize like some of like the nuances of what you should or shouldn't be doing with Git. Yeah. And I think even like at a code level too, right? Like you're, it's not these like little school projects where no one's ever going to touch them again. (laughs) So if you want to make it a little like, you know, kind of rough around the edges, when you work for a company and you're contributing to an app like Venmo, which is used by so many people, um, you don't really have that luxury. So you really have to, everything you do has to be at the standards of, you know, the brand. And it can't just be this like homework assignment that you stay up late doing. (laughs) True. I have two follow-up questions with that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to get to the Venmo bit uh, just in a sec. But before that, uh, with respect to Git, do you do anything uh, special like with respect to using Git at Venmo? Like, I mean, do you use like feature branches? Are there any specific like sort of tips that you have found yeah, uh, um, I think it's all course? very, t- uh, I think it's team specific here um, at Venmo. Okay. I think that every team has their own um, repository and their own readmes with their own kind of instructional um, contributing guides and style guides. Um, but we just, as a company, use um, GitHub Enterprise and it's really up to the team to decide if there are any kind of funky little um things you want to add. So for Android, for example, um, we have Git attributes that um, automatically like performs merge unions. So um, on every pull request, we update the change log file. And that gets really annoying if 
you're adding something and then you're rebasing master because there are always merge conflicts <laughs> with this just markdown file and it's so silly and you know what the changes are and you just want to say, give me whatever's upstream and then add mine on top of it. Um, so we've added um, a little kind of law around that so we don't have to do it every single time. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, and Git also has these things called like Git hooks, right? Where it mm-hmm. sort of like helps with these kind of things. Where like, okay, Yeah, this. the Git Slack integrations are pretty cool too. Um, so you can hook it up such that um, you know, for Android, we have a channel, so you can get notifications on builds or pull requests. Um, so if Slack is your preferred kind of medium of communication with the team, they make it really easy. Okay. The other question I had was like, you mentioned some of like the ways that, uh, like get in touch with a mentor, have this accelerated learning pace. Cause one year is amazing. So were there any specific resources that you would like to recommend? Like any specific courses or like books or something that you feel? Yeah. Um, so my journey was kind of special in that it was both Java and Android. So, Mm -hmm. um, on the Java side of things, um, I actually started with Java for dummies. Um, I find that the for dummies series are actually not for dummies and that they're really (laughs) well-written books by really formative experts in the field. Um, that was really useful. Mm -hmm. Um, after that, Joshua Block's Effective Java is an absolute must read. Both of my mentors swear by it. It's like our Java Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's wonderful. I think there are 27, like just hard and true rules about Java, um, that are really good. And then for Android, um, I did the Big Nerd Ranch um, Android book, and they're actually coming out with an updated version um, this October, I believe. Yeah, I, um, I think I saw a pre-release or something, right? The, yeah, uh, because the version that I use actually was written um, for Eclipse, and the new version uses Android Studio. But to be honest, Eclipse and Android Studio were so similar that it was really easy to follow along. A lot of the menus and settings and mm-hmm. everything were kind of in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, but on top of that, and the thing that I think really makes a difference and actually something I found that is more difficult to find in today's kind of landscape um, are computer science classes. And oh. if you are new to engineering, it's not just about programming and it's not just about language and syntax. There's some real science and math behind a lot of this. Um, and I actually took, uh, this professor at Harvard, David Milan puts all of his classes up on YouTube. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I took quotation fingers, <laughs> um, <laughs> intro to computer science with him, um, and a couple of other, uh, higher level, um, CS courses via like my Apple TV and YouTube. Perfect. That makes sense. Whenever I want to like brush some concepts in computer science, I did the ones from Berkeley, like the California Berkeley courses. Yeah. Like- a bunch of them. Those were yeah. MIT has a bunch of good ones as well. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. MIT has one as well. So we'll add a link to all of those in the show notes if people want to go and get their computer science fundamentals straightened <laughs> yeah. out. There's plenty of watching material there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so when was a pretty cool place to work for? I definitely want to talk a little more about that towards the end. And but recently, I I think I I saw a. A LibDub video up somewhere? Yes. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So actually, last week was our hack week. Um, so once a year during the summer, um, because that's when we have the most interns, okay. um, we have a hack week, which is a fun opportunity for the company um, because it allows everyone, both engineering, business operations, to kind of collaborate on anything that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are awards at the end of the week, um, and those are... Um, voted and based on, you know, value to Venmo, how much they align with our company goal. But that doesn't mean that you can't work on something totally unrelated that you just are really interested in. So last summer, 
Um, we had interns work. Uh, we had a street light. Um, I don't even know where we got the street light, um, <laughs> but they hooked it up. So um, to our servers. So anytime the servers were up and, you know, returning 200s, it was a green light. And if there were errors or something went wrong, it was a yellow or a red light. What? So, so this was like fun. an actual real traffic light inside your office. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, it was <laughs> really, it's a lot of fun things like that. Um, this year uh, we had someone, um, we have showers in the office mm-hmm. and uh, two of our engineers on the data team uh, built actually a piece of hardware um, that goes uh, in the locks in the shower and it cooks up to a Slack bot and you can go onto the Slack channel. It's like showers um, and you can see, uh, you can ask the Slack bot if the showers are locked, which means that someone's probably in there. So you know that they're busy. Wow, <laughs> um, that is... So it's just a fun opportunity to really learn something new. Um, Venmo is a really fantastic place um, for learning. Everyone here, I don't know if it's written down anywhere as one of our core values, but definitely from a cultural perspective, it is absolutely something everyone values really highly. Um, so it's really, it was a fun week. That is and the wicked. lift up video to get back to that was um, someone's uh, a hack week project. <laughs> nice. Okay. So we'll add links to those in the yeah. show notes. All right. So the last time I talked to you, this mm-hmm. was at IO. You said you haven't worked on iOS at all. Yeah. I believe things have changed. Yes, you have they turned have. to the dark side, haven't I you? I have. Oh my God. I can't believe I'm admitting this on an Android podcast, but I have. <laughs> have um, you lost you, Amanda? Uh, no, not at all. Um, it's actually interesting. I can't decide if iOS engineers would enjoy coming to Android more or if Android engineers would enjoy going to iOS more. Um, the biggest fundamental difference to me so far is um, the loss of XML layouts. Oh, boy. Yeah. Layouts me- in iOS all happen programmatically. Tell um, me more. Tell me more. I, I've been like, this is like a common rant that I have because uh, in my company as well, when I chat with some of the iOS engineers, sometimes I feel terrible because of how easy it is for them to do some things. And sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like, wow, that is like so much Horrible. more easier to do yeah. with Android. So tell me more. Uh, in uh, And just to be clear, like uh, with iOS specifically, you were working with Swift or was it also like yes, just objective all Swift? Okay. All um, Swift. So actually, the reason I hadn't gotten into uh, iOS for the longest time was because of Objective C. Um, it's a <laughs> really <by> difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, really difficult um, switch to go from Java to Objective C. Mm-hmm. I think C-based languages are they're just drunk. I mean, they're so <laughs> silly to me, um, and that uh, is definitely coming from an Android <laughs> person. I mean, a Java person. But um, yeah, I think Swift is a lot more syntactically similar to Java. So it's so much easier to learn. It's it's readable, mm-hmm. first of all. A lot of um, little things like to call an instance method in Java, you you know, you add a dot and you call the method. So it would be like button dot set color. That makes sense to me. In Swift, it's the same thing. Whereas in Objective-C, you put the button and the method in a bracket and you separate it by a space and you it's like backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so Swift has made it really easy for me to um, collaborate with the iOS team, to work with them, you know, literally read and write their code. <laughs> so you mentioned, so it's definitely more readable. Were there any other aspects to Swift that you thought you liked? Um, I think Swift is a really cool next language if you are familiar familiar with Java and RxJava okay. because they definitely take a lot of the kind of and retro lambdas. So it's a very 
similar style stylistic language to like reactive Java with retro lambdas. <laughs> um, enums are a really big thing in Swift now that Objective C never really had. Okay. Um, so everyone on the iOS team here is just like obsessed with enums right now. Oh my um, which God. kind of is silly <laughs> to me because we've always had those. <laughs> True. But with the Android world, there's always been this thing, right? Should I use enums or should I not use right. enums? That just keeps coming up. It's almost like dogma at some point, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, use enums. No, don't use enums. <laughs> yeah. But I think the best thing about Swift, which Java would really benefit from, um, are optionals. I have heard. Yeah, I have heard. Yeah, the it good basically with, so. prevents you from ever throwing a null, the equivalent of a null pointer exception, because it forces you anytime you when you declare an object to say, is this like, is it an optional? Is it nullable? And if it is, you have to say what to do if it's null. Right. Whereas in Java, you have to know ahead of time that it's possible for it to be null and then do a check. And then if it isn't null or it is null, do something, but you don't, you're not forced into that situation. Right. Um, so I think from like an app stability perspective, it means that your errors and your crashes will just never be from nulls, which is really like such a wild dream for me <laughs> and it's pretty common too right? yeah i mean because yeah every time you sort of like you're knee deep you're coding you want to just like get something out of your head out mm -hmm. there and you forget these small sort of like weird like quirks uh, yeah the language, and then, boom, and yeah yeah <laughs> the next thing you know you have an np in your hand exactly uh okay nice so have you worked with Kotlin before? Because like this is also something that uh, I've heard uh, JetBrains' Kotlin has right. the optionals. I've looked at Kotlin a little bit. Um, Kotlin was cool because it just compiles so much faster and it's so much more lightweight. Um, and the Android build time is just so painful. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I actually do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day okay. during build <laughs> during... times, like okay. in 30 to 47 second intervals. Okay. <laughs> um, but I've only really um, like read the Kotlin docs. I haven't really written anything in Kotlin. Yeah, me too. I have sort of like experimented, did the usual like hello world kind of things. Right. But I haven't gotten too deep into it. I'm, I've, I've, not yet like made the switch to sort of like you know moving to a different language completely in my production yeah. applications a quick follow-up to also the thing you mentioned you said retro lambda you guys use retro lambda and rx java a lot mm -hmm. is this also in the production application is this also like in venmo does venmo actually use retro lambda in your production we applications do. We amazing do. how has that been i mean because i know a common question that because i haven't made uh, the jump yet to using retro lambda either uh, really no I, I it's just in my production applications, I've I haven't pulled the trigger just yet because I've heard there are like some weird cases. Obviously, those are edge cases, and like right. those aren't like big things. I remember like yeah. Dan was on our show, and like he mentioned uh, Dan. This is Dan Lu. So he Dan Lu, yeah. Uh, he mentioned that they use Retro Lambda as well in uh, Trello. Trello. Mm -hmm. So I and he said like there's like one weird case which usually you don't hit uh like hit upon but right. i for some reason i've just like not pulled the trigger yet so uh, I'm, I'm trying to collect like information from everyone hey do you use it so this yeah. is my chance yeah, yeah, have no. you run into any problems with retro lambda as such um the only issues um that come to mind are around um testing and depending what kind of testing framework or um testing service you use Ah. Um, some retro lambdas are not compatible with older versions of Java. And so like it doesn't, like bytecode doesn't translate well. Um, so you'll get into some testing bugs, but we don't, um, we have a workaround for that here. Um, so it really isn't an issue. Um, and for me, retro lambdas make the code actually a lot simpler to read. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think the anonymous overriding method sometimes is a little bit too mm-hmm. too much information, um, and it just makes the classes look a lot sleeker, which from a compiler perspective makes zero difference, but um, I think just visually someone coming into the code base, it makes it a lot easier. Absolutely. This is also something that's interesting to talk about because the IntelliJ IDE has like this auto-folding mechanism, so it's sort of right. like makes it a little better, but it's it's just not the same. It's not the yeah. same as having like true lambdas. Yeah. And another difference that not many people realize, which I find is also a primary advantage with like using retro lambda or even lambdas, uh, Java 8's lambdas is with anonymous inner classes, like one of the biggest problems is it automatically has a reference to your enclosing parent. So if you use like an anonymous, anon- an anonymous <laughs> inner class in your activity or your fragment. In all likelihood, you have a reference to the activity or the fragment. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the cases of lambdas and also retro lambdas, like if you don't explicitly use a variable or something that, uh, if you don't explicitly need the reference of the enclosing parent in the actual compiled bytecode, it doesn't maintain a reference. Oh, so wow! That is something that's, that's really neat. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So there's actually an advantage awesome. to using lambdas and yeah. lambdas. So, okay, I got to get on it and get my team to sort of yeah. <laughs> make the shift. And Absolutely. I shall report back with my <laughs> problems or my tales of <laughs> glory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing that I've heard that iOS has uh, previously, at least that they did better before, was mm-hmm. animations. Yeah. And this is basically sort of our main topic for the day mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 25 minutes in good job yeah. Kashik. this is what happens if don's not <laughs> right <laughs> on a show we go crazy uh, but in any case uh, animations i've heard for like a long time were way more easier to do with ios now the thing yeah. is i also sort of like hopped onto the android uh, wagon a tad bit later so mm-hmm. when i learned about animations it was it didn't seem as difficult as i thought it would be but this mm-hmm. is also because there was like one huge sea uh, of change that came in. Do you like to start off? Do you, do you think the, is that statement true? Like, do you think animations are just easier to deal with with iOS than it is on Android? I haven't um, truthfully done a lot of um, animations on iOS, but right, I think okay. the I do in my you know working with uh, my colleagues, the things that they're able to do at the speed they're able to do them leads me to believe the answer to that is yes. Okay. Okay. Um, I think in general the way that um, iOS platform is built is for it's very UI focused. That is, I mean, that's Apple at its core, right? Right. Right. Um, right. And I think with Android, the like SDK is a lot more mathematically true right (laughs) so in android instead of saying like if you wanted to get scroll direction you actually just get like zero like negative or positive numbers indicating up or down (laughs) which like you could do anything you want with those mathematical truths whereas ios is just will be like it's moving up it's moving down oh so when you extrapolate that out to animations i think that um they definitely make it a lot easier um to achieve visually kind of cool quirky things I mean, as is the case with most things in uh, with Google, like it's built primarily for engineers, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, I mean, it's, it, uh, it's definitely a good thing for most engineers. And I th- I think with permissions too, actually, um, I've had, I just had a conversation with a colleague last week about um, how Apple really, um, the way their permissions is structured is such that it really benefits the users mm-hmm. more than it work. They care about more about the users than they do with the engineers. And Google cares more about the engineers than we do about the users. Right. Okay, so what were some of the first animations that you built with Android? 
Um, so one of my first uh, projects at Venmo um, and something that we're still working on is um, converting a lot of our web views in the app to native Mm -hmm. uh, to native screens. And so I worked on the incoming requests screen. So if someone charges you money or if someone wants to be your friend, all those sort of notifications now live on one um, native page. Mm -hmm. And um, for confirming a payment, when you accept a payment, um, we have an animation where under the request, there are two buttons, one for pay, one for decline. But when mm -hmm. you tap pay, actually, the button animates all the way to fill out the whole space where the other button previously existed mm -hmm. and um, kind of animates down, showing you where the money is going to come from. Um, if it's your Venmo balance, it says like what your balance is. If it's a credit card, it says what your credit card number is. And the button changes colors, and then you hit confirm payment. Um, nice. Because we're dealing with money, you got to give people all the information. Right, right, right. Um, so that was my first kind of big animation. And the thing about that, which was kind of tricky, was... Um, these are a list of requests. So you're not just animating one object, you're animating like a row, an item in a list. Ah, interesting. And list view animations are no fun on Android. I know, I know. So my very first animation was also like for a list view. I mean, granted, mm -hmm. it wasn't as uh, complicated as that one. Yeah. I remember because I've historically been a web developer. So mm -hmm. I jumped on to Android right away. So I was really, it was a very big moment for me when I had to like write my first animation because it's the first time that I actually like got to use like something that was right. complicated enough to look decent to a user <laughs> yeah <laughs> if i remember right the way i did it was like inside the adapter like in my get view call yeah uh, as each like view came in i was like oh just put a delay so like as the as the items sort of like showed up on the list i sort of added this animation so it would like, slide up from the bottom and come up and i was so Very proud cool. of that animation <laughs> i went around saying yeah i went around showing it to all my colleagues and the ios folks were like is that not a checkbox for us like i think that's like a checkbox and you would get that for free <laughs> yeah so animations are not too bad to deal with it, it mm -hmm. was like a lot of fun to begin like what what were some of the resources that you used to learn animations um so actually there is a um a GitHub, uh, I think it's Snowdream GitHub, and they have just like a massive list of Android libraries um, that are like all on GitHub. So they're all open source Android libraries. Mm -hmm. um, and that is almost always the first place I go when I'm trying to learn anything on Android. Um, they have like, you know, stuff for widgets, stuff for animations, stuff for like event bus, image loading, icons, like anything. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's really amazing. So that's a good place um, to start. That's where I started. And then old Google I.O. talks, actually. Um, animations is always a topic. It's always in some session. So if you want to go on YouTube and kind of go down the I.O. <laughs> rabbit hole, mm -hmm. um, there's some really good talks there. Um, uh, Roman Gee actually gave a spe uh, talk, I think, in 2012, 2013, about... Um, list view animation specifically and that was really useful um and all of that's open source and you can see his code so that was um those were both my kind of big resources nice i've interestingly i've never heard uh did you say it was snow dream uh yeah snowdream.github.io interesting i've never heard of that that's amazing yeah I'll, I'll, I'll add a it's link the longest that. list you've ever seen of that. i didn't <laughs> even know there were this many people doing android <laughs> <laughs> that is cool it's always fun to have good samples out there Mm -hmm. So the way I've primarily learned most of the way animations are done is like Google has these dev bytes. Right. So uh, Chet Haas usually has like 
a dev bite explaining how like something works and it's pretty mm-hmm. good. So well, yeah. I, what I'll do is I'll add a link to the YouTube playlist of dev bites. People have to like scroll all the way to the, the bottom because that's mm-hmm. where like some of the first few dev bites, I think the first six or eight or 10 of them were all on animations. And those yeah. were just like amazing. They're very interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's maybe dive in to a little more detail with respect to animations. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this whole concept of animations and then there's this whole like this other section on transitions right so like there's like transitions the newer transitions that came Mm -hmm. about in uh, 4.4 KitKat and there's also like activity animations and fragment animations but really what they are are like transitions they are not necessarily animations this is something also Google is flawless at which is basically naming things completely in the most confusing way yes that is Uh, yeah I mean someone uh, I mean, it's built for engineers, and sometimes I feel like engineers maybe don't care about naming as much, but naming is so important. I mean, it's my I, my old co- uh, colleague and I used to joke that what we do for a living is just name methods. <laughs> There's this weird yeah. concept that as an engineer you have to be good at numbers, but really you have to be good at naming methods. <laughs> That's why they pay our salaries. It's just to pick good names. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're not necessarily going to dive into transitions and activity animations and fragment animations, maybe in another episode. But what we want yeah. to like talk about is like the crux of uh, animations, right? Yeah. So when I started with animations, I was confused as hell. Like, and, and the reason, like, I mean, it was easy to just like look at an example or a sample, pull out like some code out of there and just like dump like the code mm-hmm. and then like have an animation work and be happy about it. But mm-hmm. and I wanted to sort of like understand like the two cr- crux of like how this thing is even structured because like there are animations there are animators mm-hmm. there's like animator re- sets animator <laughs> sets there's animation set there's view yep. property animator there's property animator there's view animator there's mm-hmm. the, there are like a bunch of things and for a long time i just couldn't wrap my head around it because i was like oh that says animation or it has the word and it has like the word animation in its name so i should probably try using that yep and you can like quickly like enter this sort of like maze of confusion if you don't get your naming right so this is yes. one thing that i want to like maybe tell our listeners cuz i found mm-hmm. it like really helpful mm-hmm. uh, so there's this blog post by chat this was like during the time of honeycomb right mm-hmm. so Honeycomb in Android had this massive transition because I think that was the point where they said like, hey, we really need to get like this the whole animation uh, framework uh, sort of a rehaul, right? Like, so they literally like rethought the whole way you actually do animations in Honeycomb. Yeah. Uh, there's this whole thing called view animations. Mm-hmm. So view animations, as I understand, is like in the like the pre-honeycomb days, right? So mm-hmm. essentially, like you said, uh, they thought about adding animations, but animations was thought about specifically only with respect to views, which is right. why like some of the older animation classes that uh, I've noticed, and again, Chet goes into like a lot of detail in this blog post, and I definitely suggest like everyone just like take a read, like even if you've never read before, because mm-hmm. it establishes this sort of like line in the sand that says like, okay, pre-honeycomb, this is what, this is how things work. And the way they were was essentially most of the animations and like the classes that you have were uh, specifically in the view animation packet. So if you look mm-hmm. at an animation uh, class or like a helper that you're using, and if it happens to be in the android.view.animation package, then yeah. you know basically that that's like the pre-honeycomb days. Right. But animator, object animator, value animator, uh, these are post-honeycomb days. So like Yeah, and the they're pa- on the widget. 
um, right, uh, kind of package now. Right, right, right. So like it, it, they don't fall under the view dot animation mm-hmm. package. So the drawback with like the view animations specifically before Honeycomb was that you could only animate views, like nothing right. else. So like mm-hmm. if you wanted to change like a drawable position or like a background color, like the translucency, if you want to ad- animate those yeah. things, those were very hard to do. There was like a lim- limited set of options that you could uh, animate. Yeah. So those things were a little tricky. And as you rightly pointed out, that's why they started out. Again, like Google is amazing for engineers. So there's like, okay, we're going to think about this thing called animator, right? And we have value animator. So they didn't want to like restrict it to just view. That's why this whole property animation came in. So that's why they introduced like property animations. And they wanted like sort of like rethink the way you do animations in general. They didn't want to like limit it just to views. So it's, uh, and it's also not limited just to like properties, like on an object. They, uh, like, he, he mentions it in a much more like succinct manner. He says like they don't necessarily want to concentrate just on the visual animation aspect. So they want you to like animate values, right? Yeah. Over time. And these values are basically then assigned to target objects. And that's mm-hmm. where like the whole animator, value animator, and the object animator come in. Yeah. So, the core class is animator, uh, I believe, yes. right? Like that's like yeah. basically the super class of mm-hmm. everything to begin in. And the next sort of like subclass is a value animator. Yes. And again, that, I want to point out, this is like, I believe there's something called a view animator as well, which is very, very different from value animator. Yes. Uh, if you have a frame layout, there's like this base class that does animations when you want to switch views and that's view animator. Right. So, view animator is really more of a transition animator um, ah, than okay. it is like in like a what we would think of as widgets. Um, it's really meant between switching frame layouts specifically. You wouldn't use it to like animate a text view. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense now. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's like a completely dif- different realm as yeah. a value animator. Yeah, it's also that view animator is in the wid- widget package versus value and object animator are both in the animation package. Ah, perfect. Sometimes like, if you just look at the package name, it makes it so much more clear. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, this is like going to be dealt with just like on the widget side right. or versus the animation side. So that's mm-hmm. like a huge, like this was like a sort of like a revelation to me. I'm like, oh, so that's where <laughs> the <Yeah>. difference <laughs> lies. Value animator, again, is like the main workhorse. Uh, so it basically does like all like the calculations. It has... Yeah an internal timing loop. And that's where like all the crux of how like the values are moved around is yeah. the logic for all of that is inside the value, value animator. animator. Yeah. Right. And the way it's done is like, okay, you have this thing that calculates all the values. It does like all the, the calculations to calculate the correct value for each mm-hmm. of the animation points. Uh, but then, and again, it's like the tree falling uh, analogy, right? So if mm-hmm. you calculate the animations and do all of this, it doesn't really make sense unless you sort of like, apply it to a specific object that you want uh, animated upon, like with these values, right? And that's where the object animator comes in. So it's like animator is like the super class. You proceed to value animator, which does just like the uh, animations. And then you have object animator, which takes in those values and applies it specifically uh, to an object. And I guess almost 90% of the cases, you would want to use like an object animator, right? Um, is that true or uh, other other oh okay so there is like yeah we'll go into like i guess view property animation. right so yeah. that's way more easier but okay for a temp- if you didn't have <laughs> the view property animator like an object animator is essentially what you would use I yeah an object right? animator is really gonna um the way that i like to think about it is um 
an object animator is going to change anything that you would have written initially in XML. So it's going to be alpha, background color, um, maybe like the y, like y translation. Um, so things like that kind of fall under object animator to me, whereas value animator are the things that are harder to set that you might not have necessarily set in XML. So like if you wanted to set the height of something, mm-hmm. I realize that you can set that on XML, but if you wanted to like actually animate the height and it was originally set to just kind of wrap content, mm-hmm. that's where you would use a value animator. Okay, interesting. I've never used like the animator class directly. I don't think you typically would need to use the animator, but have you used the value animator directly by any chance? Um, I actually have used both the animator and the um, value animator. Oh, wow. Okay, tell me more. Um, So I use the value animator for um, uh, row heights. So in what I was saying earlier, the animation that I worked on um, was for list view Uh, when we animate open, when you tap the button and it slides over and then expands, you actually need to expand the height of the cell itself. Otherwise it will kind of, you'll just, it'll be hidden under, um, the background. And this is actually an interesting, um, kind of tidbit. If you run into list view animations, um, issues with like changing the height of your cell, um, because list view tries to be very smart and it helps you recycle your views. So for example, if you were to change the background of a list cell and then you scrolled, every eighth item or whatever the you know number is, is going to have that red background. <laughs> yeah, um, right. So Roman Guy has a blog post um, about how you kind of get around that. And he basically tells you to force in the adapter get view method, force it to call it again, which is helpful if the thing that you're overriding, you've, you like set the initial state of in XML. So if ah. you set the initial background color to be white, then when you call get view, it'll be set back. But if you're like most of us and the height is something you've animated in XML, it doesn't have a like statically defined height. It has like a height, like it's to wrap content. It doesn't have a height. So calling get view again doesn't actually reset the size. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so how would you handle that then? You actually, what I did, which um, I don't know if it's better because you're kind of circumventing the logic that ListView would like to be doing, right? It's trying to recycle for you. Right. But um, kind of the sneaky way around it is, <laughs> um, and it seems kind of silly, but at the end of the height animation, um, I either want to return it to its original state, but most likely what happens is people confirm the payment. So actually I want the cell to just animate entirely away. Oh, um, and so okay, if you just okay. delete the item from the adapter okay. or from the list, okay. it takes care of deleting that view for you and it destroys the view. So if you, um, when it goes to recycle, it's not there anymore. That index has been removed. Okay. Okay. So we're basically, you, it's sort of like a hack that uses like another yeah. property of the way the recycling works. Exactly. So not um, ideal, that's but. That's clever. That is clever. <laughs> um, definitely an option. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so you use the value animator specifically for like sort of like handling the heights is what. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Have you used any sort of like custom sort of animations as such? Like, have you built like a custom animator or anything along those lines? Yeah. So um, I, um, along for, uh, on the Android Compose page, um, mm-hmm. if we're going to get specific, um, we have, um, you can either pay someone or you can request money from them. We had to add um, a feature to confirm that after you, you know, say send money that you actually mean to send the money. So it's kind of this secondary step. Okay. 
what I wanted to do, what we wanted to do was have that animation be really smooth. So if I hit confirm, you want that whole button to slide to fill up the whole view. And if you, the way that you would build this as two buttons is a linear layout with weights. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually use a um, custom value animator to animate the weight of whichever one of the buttons I'd like to show. Interesting. So was, uh, so is weight like a property directly that you can just like access or no? It is. Um, if you, um, in linear layout, um, you can get, you know, just layout parameters and weight is a value on, um, linear layouts ah, and you okay. can then value animator. Um, uh, the weight is just a float. Um, and you can set the f- weight to the animated value that you want. Oh, interesting. Interesting. This makes a lot of sense. And the advantage, I guess, with using weights, obviously, like for that specific animation that we we're talking about, if you want a button, and this is like such a common thing, right? If you want two right. buttons to have like an equal width, and you want to like, account for screen sizes and like, yeah, very yeah. natural way to do it is with like a linear layout, right? Yeah. And have like two of those buttons. Yeah. And you can kind of that way you don't have to worry about where it is, you know, what the width of the phone is, you also can change the um, duration, you can add an interpolator to go faster, slower, accelerate, decelerate. Um, and it just takes, it kind of abstracts all of that away from you. Right. I mean, at that point, you have like, essentially just cracked it open, right? So like, you yeah. have a bunch of things that you can do. That makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. So one thing I found interesting is uh, this whole like values and properties, right? Uh, there's, uh, so maybe we should talk about object animator a little more and I guess it uh, probably might make sense. The way I typically use like object animators, so a sample call would be object animator of float right. and in pa- in the parameters you would pass in first the object because again, the mm-hmm. primary objective of the object animator is to sort of target a single object, right? Yep. So you supply as the first parameter the object and this is where it gets interesting, right? The second parameter that you pass in is essentially this property of the object that we talk about, right? It's the property name. The actually. property name. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's why you would pass in things like alpha or like... Right. And that's why to me, it, it matches up so nicely with anything you would define in XML because it's exactly... If you're writing it in XML and, you know, Android colon background color, Android colon alpha, any of those property names are what you're passing through in an object animator method. Yeah. And this is something that like uh, I picked up recently because initially uh, the way they did that was, I think it was the API 14 uh, where you couldn't essentially, well, uh, well, yeah, I, I don't recall exactly which API mm-hmm. level it was, but like you said, you literally pass in like the property name, right? So like mm-hmm. alpha. So you like in, you would pass a string called alpha. Obviously the it uses reflection in the background because that's the only way it would sort of like convert that to like a property and add like a set or get method on top of that property, right? right? Uh, I believe then they brought in a more sort of like canonical way to do it. And so like on the view class, like there's like a static constant where you can specify like view.alpha, like the property mm-hmm. names were given like constants. And the next two or one or possibly two parameters that you would pass in are the values that you want animated on for that property specifically right Mm -hmm. so that's like how the object animator call is made one thing that i found interesting is respect to the properties you can because if you went the reflection route and this is not something that like they removed away from you you can i mean this is like the the core way that it works if you have a property like if you had any random property assuming you had like this property that didn't exist natively with the android sdk you could have like maybe a custom view and possibly have your own property. The hidden assumption about like these properties is that they should have 
getter and setter functions on the view. If you yeah. actually had the getter and setter functions, you could actually pass in just the val- the property name and the mm-hmm. animations would work. And it, it seems almost magical, but obviously that's yeah. how like the reflection would work, right? And yeah. it, it's just this contract depending on how the animations are worked on by the system. So if you yeah. have like a getter setter function with the specific property and you give the property that name, you mm-hmm. could go all in, add your own like super custom property and then have that animated. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you had... Um if you created a custom view and then, you know, in like a, an attributes XML file named all the custom things for it, mm-hmm. you could absolutely create kind of a static property object, which would take in the view itself and then whatever the value was. Mm-hmm. So if it was like a string or if it was an integer, depending on what it was that you were doing, mm-hmm. um, just a get for the, like the value. So if that's again, a string or a float or whatever, and then, a, you know, a static void set method since we're touching upon the properties, right? This is, uh, there's this concept called a type evaluator. Mm-hmm. So again, like these names are not very friendly. Like it, nope. it's hard to sort of like understand what they mean at the face of it. But like, mm-hmm. if you like dive in and try to learn one of these terms one by each day, then it makes sense. So yeah. these properties, you, you mentioned that gravity is actually like an integer or like a float right. value, right? So you have float values, you have integer values, Natively, like we mentioned, this whole timing loop that happens with the value animator, mm-hmm. the, the Android system essentially needs to understand how the progression of values go, right? Yes. And that is essentially what the type evaluator object does. Yes. Usually you don't have to deal with it because most properties are either like a float or an int or a point. And natively the system has float evaluators, point evaluators, and int evaluators, which are basically uh, implementations of this type evaluator object. There's also another one I remember for color specifically. Color's RGB evaluator. Exactly, ARGB evaluator. So these are evaluator objects that help the system understand how you should move between different values yeah so you could even go crazy and have like this new system that you want to build and then if you provide an evaluator to the animator object and let it know how it should be like moving between values mm-hmm. then you could do that as well right so you can build your own super fancy animation yeah. system with this thing they want to expose as much as possible so that you can leverage the platform to use like all sort of animations Absolutely. And I think that kind of comes back to my point about how Android is really A, designed for engineers and B, is designed to be just mathematically true. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. you can use these things to create UI elements and UI animations. But at its core, what they are are just mathematical functions, right? A type evaluator is literally some like linear interpolator that is telling you how to get from X to Z. (laughs) Right, right, right. I just pulled up the type evaluator source code and I love, love the Android SDK source code. (laughs) This is an actual quote. The calculation is a simple parametric calculation. Result equals XO plus T times X1 minus XO. Yeah, so so simple. (laughs) It's obvious, right? I mean, again, you should know this. Like, wake me up in the morning, the first thing I'll start spewing out is stuff like this, right? Exactly. (laughs) Speaking about like math and valuation. So this is something that always threw me off for a very long time with x and y in the android system if i give it a positive x which direction does it go does it go to the left does it go to the right it's because 
it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's because the zero, like the um, where the two axes meet, is like the upper right hand corner of the screen. So it's actually the upper left. Oh, upper corner. left. Yeah. Okay. So this is again so confusing. So in coordinate geometry, there are like four quadrants. Like if right. you had the x axis and the y axis, the yeah. x is the horizontal axis, the y is the yep. vertical one. The point that they meet is the center, which is mm-hmm. typically in a coordinate system, that would be zero, zero. Right. And that would be the center. That would be the center. <laughs> so even in coordinate geometry, when the X and the Y axis meet, they're given names. Each quadrant right. is given like names. There's the first, yeah. the first quadrant, which is like the upper right. There's the yeah. second quadrant, which is the upper left. There's yeah. the third quadrant, which is... uh Wait, one, two, three, four. Bottom right. left, yeah. Yeah bottom, yeah, bottom left. And then there's the fourth quadrant, which is the right. bottom right. And they wouldn't pick the first quadrant because then all the numbers would be positive and that would be too simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? I mean, how, that, that, no, that, you can't make life Let's that easy. Let's go with the fourth. And that's what they did. They chose the bottom <laughs> yeah. right corner. What I always get caught up on um, is sometimes if you're animating something, it's not actually in relation to the screen itself, but it's in relation to its parent view. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a whole other set of numbers that you were not thinking of because you're trying to animate this one child view. Mm -hmm. And it's not actually like its true position. It's its position in relation to its parent. Um, And this is a tool. I don't know what the like technical term that iOS uses, but iOS has this like view inspector where you can basically like, like, take whatever view you're working on and like rotate it sideways and you can see all the layers of the view. Ah, okay. So like, I, and, I remember Chrome had that thing, right? Like Google, yeah. the, the Chrome browser like had something where you could like do something. Yeah. And it's like, I wish there was a tool, maybe there is um, in Android where you could kind of, other than an XML, like seeing the way that I've like nested things, if there was some visual kind of GUI for like how, where my views are nested and like what they're like, position mm-hmm. is related to their parent i know there definitely is one tool i can't remember off the top of my head but i'll definitely oh. add a link to that uh, show notes yes I, I also think facebook's stetho library i should check oh this. yeah i think stetho has something like that Stetho just really links up to chrome for like debugging i mean i guess it makes sense they'd have some sort of visual right. um, debugging as well but I could be confusing it with just like Chrome in general, but yeah, I, yeah. I, if I remember, they, I know for sure they have like a view inspector. So you could, I mean, they actually like dump out like the XML views. So like, yeah. I know they have that. I think that like, that's like the view hierarchy. Yeah. I think they also have like a visual thing. I could be totally wrong with this, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, but um, there is something and like, I'll definitely add a link to the show notes and maybe in the next episode in our follow up, we yeah. point out. <laughs> Uh, the next interesting tool is like the animator set, right? Mm-hmm. What exactly is the animator set? The animator set allows you to play, um, to define the ordering of animations that you want to play. Okay. okay. Um, so if you had, for example, in my like list view animation, I'm animating the button left and I'm animating the height and I'm changing alphas and colors. You can basically say, you know, play this with this before this, after that. And then you just call play on the whole thing. Ah, interesting. So, yeah. So the obvious question is like, well, why do I have to have a new object for this? Right? Is it just like mm-hmm. syntactic sugar? I could just have an object animated, like the first object animated, the second one, and just like execute them one after the other, right? right. Why wouldn't that work? The reason that wouldn't, well, I mean, that just gives you one aspect, right? If you had everything uh, execute one after the other, then right. that's straightforward. But what animator set allows you is to essentially choreograph this whole animation. So you right. could have like, oh, do this, but as this happens, do this. But after yeah. both of these are done, do that. Yeah. It allows you to sort of like really uh, 
time these in a more convenient manner. I guess what you could do is like you could execute the object animator uh, animations at the exact intervals of time, like with the delays, and then maybe achieve the same thing. You obviously don't have to go through that hassle. Like the animator set is essentially just meant for that, right? It's to right. combine a whole bunch of animations. Usually I try to only deal with an animator set and the object animator, unless obviously you have to like dive in and sort of like crack it open for something custom. Yeah, and the other cool thing about animator set is in addition to kind of like the obvious methods that allow you to kind of force these um, object animators to have dependencies on one another mm -hmm. in terms of ordering, um, you can also, my favorite is reverse. Oh, oh my, yeah, that so is so useful. You can literally so call yeah. set.reverse and mm -hmm. it just like undoes it. <laughs> oh, that is, yeah. So we should talk about view property animators. One thing I like about the view property animators, it follows this whole fluent API system, right? Right. And it's really easy to trigger an animation, especially if it's something small, like, okay, just like move it by X. Right. What you can do is like, if you have your view object, you can call animate, like the method animate on it. Mm -hmm. And boom, suddenly you have like, a, it returns a view property animator, yeah. right? And on top of that, you can just like do like the properties that we talked about, like you can do like a, a dot X or dot X by provide the value, then dot Y by provide these values. Mm -hmm. And you have all of those animations, right? If I had to write the equivalent in... Uh, with object animators, usually that tends to be like what I would otherwise do with like one line of code would take me like five lines of code, right? Five or yeah. four lines of code. So the view property animator, as I understand, has better performance. Like I don't know why, but uh, no, I, it's mentioned sure in true. some point in the docs that apparently they have slightly yeah. better uh, performance. And also, yeah, the other obvious advantage is it's super easy, right? I mean, just like you start, you call the animate uh, method on the object and boom, you're ready to go yeah. with like animations. There are, uh, however, also disadvantages. I don't think you can reverse very easily with uh, view property animators. With animator sets, you can. Right. With view property animators, I don't think there's an easy way to sort of like reverse animations. I could totally be wrong and people would correct me if, <laughs> if yeah, I'm wrong. I'm not... But like my understanding is like that is like, a disadvantage yeah and like uh animator set you can do sequential animations mm -hmm. but you know if you want to like group animations and like sort of like play around with those timings it's a little harder to do that with the view property animator yeah you lose a little bit of control for sure exactly so the next primary object that usually when you want to like play around with feel of animations right is like the interpolator object mm -hmm. so can you throw some light on what the interpolator object is? You mentioned it a couple of times before. Yeah, I mean, it basically allows you to set kind of the acceleration or deceleration of your um, of your animation. Okay, so it's just like, I guess it. there's like a default animation. Is that how it's different? Like there's like this default speed at which animations run. Um, animation, yeah. So they typically run um, in a linear fashion, I believe. Um, and you can change that ratio though. And I think this is like a generic concept. It's not specific to just like the Android animation framework. Interpolators are like a generic concept. It's very easy to get either these playful or these most realistic sort of uh, reactions to your animations, right? So some mm -hmm. common interpolators are like, there's the bounce one, there's overshoot, accelerate, decelerate, like you mentioned. So these kind of effects that you want to add to your animations, you can do them very easily with interpolators mm -hmm. and it's so simple all you have to do is the animation object that you have you just set an interpolator so object yeah. animators have i guess most other animator objects also have this uh, method you can just like directly set interpolator on them and provide it an instance of an interpolator and mm -hmm. 
boom, you have, you're off to the races. Yep. Um, it's really nice. And the great thing there, again, I'm going to say this a thousand times, <laughs> but um, you can make your own. You can write your own. So again, it's all about like just mathematical truths in Android. Um, so they've definitely done some of the work um, for you, but because it's all open source and it's exposed kind of where the functions are and how they're kind of going from the zero to one ratio, um, you can customize it if you want it to be something kind of crazy. Right. Uh, I just can't resist. I have to say this. Uh, one of my awesome picks for this episode is actually a blog post. I, I don't remember who the person is. Let me look at my notes mm-hmm. quickly. Okay. So it's Yalantis. So that's basically mm-hmm. the name of the website. And they talk about how they built this skeleton uh, animation. So like a guillotine is like for essentially when someone's getting beheaded in the olden days, you have this sort of, uh, giant knife like thing that's like whoop, just right. like swoops yeah, like 18, in it just comes down and exactly so somebody built this custom interpolator that follows the, the similar pattern a gravity interpreter <laughs> yeah, uh, it's actually like pretty the blog post is really well done like they yeah. they actually and it allowed me to geek out just a little because they I, also go into the mathematical equations that yeah they use they they sort of like visualize how they want the animation in terms of a function and then they split right. each section out to follow a specific equation and then they this may sound like kind of like crazy but actually if like one reads the blog post it's it's very well done if you read that then you're like oh i can write an interpolator on my own yeah it's pretty straightforward so uh, again if you want to read uh, amanda ninja standards and writing custom everything for animations <laughs> <laughs> you should feel free to like sort of read that blog post yeah i'll definitely check that out so we talked a lot about like the post uh, honeycomb world. I want to just quickly touch on the pre honeycomb animation. So at least like if people run into them, they they know that they're dealing with the pre honeycomb days or like the post honeycomb days. So one is uh, frame animations. I I must mention frame animations are pre honeycomb days, but they're super useful even today. The way frame animations work is it's super simple. You can achieve extremely complex animations in a very simple way. But the way you do it is you just provided a sequence of like images or like drawables. You can say, okay, at time zero, show this frame. At time one, show this frame. At time two, at the second mark, show this frame. So you can like have this super complex, fancy animation. And all you have to do is just provide it a sequence of frames. You say, okay, play these frames at these intervals. And mm-hmm. it'll just play the same thing. So many of these new material animations for icons were like, an app we constantly recommend is PocketCast, right? So the PocketCast mm-hmm. folk basically uh, have this amazing play-pause animation. As you hit the play button and uh, you keep toggling the two options, it animates into, it transforms from a play into the pause button. I know oh, there was oh. the back and the navigation drawer or the home button. Mm-hmm. I know that was like a very common, most Google applications did that. So yeah. if you want to animate images, you could, I guess, do it like in a very purely mathematical form and build the whole thing. But that would just be crazy talk, right? Yeah. I mean, it would be extremely difficult to build. So if you want to build these really fancy kind of animations where you're animating images, mm-hmm. frame animations are a very nice and convenient way to do this. Unfortunately, nice. the disadvantage is because you're using that many images and drawables, it's obviously more, uh, it's yeah. not as uh, performant as you would like it. But right. sometimes you can achieve some super complex, fancy looking stuff with frame animations. Yeah. There's also this thing called the layout animation controller. And I think we mentioned, oh, maybe this was when we were talking offline, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so the layout animation controller is also this like super simple thing. It's pretty old. What it yeah. does 
most of the layouts that we use, uh, they come with these sort of like preloaded animations. So it's basically like a switch that you can turn on in your layout. Uh, even list views have this. You can basically just say, okay, hey, turn on your animation. So anytime you hide an element or you show an element, it accounts for these things. So it's nice for like the simple stuff. So if you want like a basic set of animations applied across the views, it yeah. just like does it for you. But if you want more control, obviously this is not something right. you'll have to crack it open again. Yeah. It would be cool to um, to hook up the animations to some of the reactive um, observables, so like on tech, in that case, like on text change. Um, Interesting. You could oh, be yeah. like listening for text change events and then you could like, throttle um like you know 500 milliseconds so you're not doing it like immediately you're kind of waiting for users to stop typing or you could filter it by number like once they've typed two letters or something that is an excellent idea so people listening reactive animations is what amanda is looking for yeah so someone <laughs> build it and then let us know and we'll put it up in the show notes and then so call me and we'll give you a job at venmo Oh, yeah. Ah, I see what he did there. Nice play. Nice play. Just slip that one right in. I know. I know. Very slick there. <laughs> okay. So in general, what's your advice uh, towards animation? There's um actually another really useful thing I find is um looking at apps that exist and looking at animations that you like and thinking about how you would build them. Oh, um, okay. This is a conversation actually that I have, I have all the time with uh, Kevin Grant, who works at Tumblr. Um, and we always kind of joke about if you how, if you got five Android developers in a room and you showed them one an- animation, you'd end up with 27 different ways to animate it. <laughs> that Yeah, that is probably true. <laughs> um, so that's always kind of a fun exercise and a great way, I think, to start thinking about these things. Um, because if you're just like, oh, I want to, an- like, you never want to just animate something randomly. It's always in a context and a place with other elements. So I think looking at other apps is a great place. Um, there is an open source library, um, bringing it back to reactive. Uh, it's like, uh, an observable, I think it's like scroll view observables. And it basically is, um, it's not like pure animations. It's more like it responds to touch events, um, and kind of changes values based on that. But what's great about that project. And I think a bunch of other projects, um, open source projects have this are sample apps. So you can play with all the animations and you can play with all the, kind of visual changes and then you can look at the source code and see what's happening. So I happen to be a very visual learner. Um, and so things like that work really well for me. That is fantastic. And we'll try to add links to all of those uh, in the show notes. Yeah. And something else I actually just realized um, last week, which I didn't had no idea before um, in Android studio, have you ever used the uh, Android device monitor? Uh, I probably don't know what you're mentioning, but yeah, go ahead. So there is, in Android Studio, there are like a bunch of little Androids in the top bar. And if you just hover over them, um, next to the SDK manager is this Android device monitor. And if you plug it in um, while your phone is plugged in um, or any device, um, you can basically capture a screenshot of whatever Ah. is on your phone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it actually shows you on the left, like the view hierarchy. And so yes. you can see, and it works on any, like literally if you have Twitter open, you can see Twitter's view hierarchy. You can't see, you can basically see the ID like of the um, object and a couple of the values, but it's really helpful if you're trying to, for example, understand how they're animating it or how they've like at least structured their XML file. 
it's kind of a cool way to sneak into some of these apps. Very nice, very nice. I I think there was a mechanism to do it before, like outside of Android Studio, but mm-hmm. I believe this was added like pretty recently, right? Or maybe it was always there and I just didn't realize. It I think might they- have been. And it's one of those things I literally discovered, I think a month ago. And now I'm just like a stalker to all these other apps that I use. <laughs> like, how are they doing this? Uh, right, right. I remember in the early days, we wanted to look at how uh, certain like uh, photo applications like Instagram and stuff were doing building their views just to see like in terms of like performance and optimization and seeing their view hierarchies just gives a bunch of ideas right yeah so you can like oh so that's how they used maybe a relative yeah. layout and something else so like maybe yeah. there's a way to achieve it so it's sort of like this interesting game you can play with absolutely sort of- and I think something with Android too which is kind of there are always, you know, we talked last time about, are you a light, you know, Android Studio person or a dark Android Studio? But I think they're also, are you a linear layout person or a relative layout person? Okay. <laughs> um, because I think depending on what you're trying to achieve, sometimes one is obviously better. But I think in a lot of cases, you could do it either way. Um, so I'm always curious to see how other people, like what their preferred root layout is. <laughs> there was this uh, like conversation I was following on Twitter. Someone said there's... No reason to use, I mean, obviously he was being a little like snarky yeah. and he's being funny. There's like any use case for uh, a relative layout can sufficiently be solved using a multiple combinations of linear layouts. So That's my kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And then <laughs> Romain Guy replied to this. He's like, yeah, you can do that, but I will find you. <laughs> so yeah, uh, there's definitely use cases to when you should be using nested yeah. uh, layout. Well, actually, ideally, you don't want to be using nested layouts at all. But yeah, right. it's it's a fun exercise, at least for the sake of learning anything. Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, Amanda, this was a whole lot of fun. Before we want to sort of wind this show down, it's time to give our listeners the awesome picks for the week. Do you want to start us off with? Yeah. Picks? Um, so something um, that I uh, actually heard that Vice magazine does, um, which I think is a kind of a cool tip is... Slack is, I think, a really popular tool now for everyone. And I think that it's hard to keep up all the time necessarily with all the channels. And so something that they do, which um, we've tried to start implementing at Venmo, is having a to-read channel where people can go and post interesting articles and just kind of things that you would otherwise post in a totally normal, unrelated channel. But then Mm -hmm. there's no way of aggregating all of those like, damn, where is that article that someone recommended I read? Um, And so... Someone posted one um, in our two-read channel last week, and it was about being a senior engineer, um, which is a problem that I think a lot of us, um, either you think about it a lot or you never think about it, but kind of the weird, the weirdness of being an engineer and how the more senior you get, that actually means you are doing less engineering um, and how kind of strange it is that that's the paradigm. And it talks a lot about what does it mean to be a mature engineer and, ha- and in a field where like we all need to kind of learn from each other and that's how everyone grows. How do you help yourself learn and also help your team learn if you're not necessarily programming all the time and the differences between like, I hate these terms, but hard skills and soft skills. (laughs) Um, But it's a really, it's an interesting read. And I think any engineer at any stage in their career um, would really benefit from it. Very interesting. So two tips actually there, right? Like, so one is like your Slack channel for to read. Mm-hmm. And the other is uh, the link that we'll add yeah. to the show notes. Very cool. So my picks for the week is one I already mentioned about this example. I'll add it uh, again towards the end of the show notes. It's amazing. They talk about how they built this uh, custom interpolator. 
Mm-hmm. The other is again, it's all animation related. Mm-hmm. So there's this app called Timely, which is uh, known to have some of the most buttery, smooth, beautiful animations. It's <laughs> essentially just like a, uh, an alarm application. People love this application and they love the animations because they really took it to a new level. Yeah. Uh, subsequently, I guess they got uh, they got acquired by Google. Right. There are like two people who have tried to sort of like emulate uh, this specific kind of tweening animation in Timely. So uh, for people who have used Timely, the app, you'll notice like the numbers, they sort of like have this tweening kind of like effect, right? So like they transform uh, from one number to the other, like with a very beautiful animation. It makes more sense if you actually look at... <laughs> right. <laughs> Animations add, are best seen. Yeah, exactly. I'll add, a li- uh, I'll add a YouTube link as well to the animation that I'm trying to talk about. Uh, Alex Lockwood posted this link on YouTube. So I'll add a link to that. And uh, Sriram Ramani from Facebook, he talks mm-hmm. about how you would go about implementing this number tweening animation. So those are two links that I'll add as well. It takes a little different tack. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like at the custom view level, but yeah. it's kind of interesting to follow on and try to understand how animations are implemented in general. Very cool. All right. So if people want to reach out to you, Amanda, what's the best way they can do that? Twitter. Um, my handle is Mandy Bess, M-A-N-D-Y-B-E-S-S. B as in boy. Perfect. So we will add a link to that as well. And people can find the show notes for this episode at fragmentedpodcast.com. If you have feedback and suggestions for us, as always, please feel free to tweet them at fragmentedcast. And Don or I will definitely have a look at them. If you want to get in touch with Don or me, Twitter is, again, the best place. And you folks know where to reach us. Thank you all for listening. And thank you so much for being here, Amanda. It is a pleasure. I enjoyed this episode a lot. Thank Thank you you guys so much for having me again. Such a pleasure.